commercial property with Rethink Investing. Australia's largest and most comprehensive podcast covering all things commercial investing. Great intro that, Phil Tarrant, co-host, Inside Commercial Property, Rethink Investing. I'm joined with my co-host here, Scott O'Neill, Director of Rethink Investing and Commercial Property Guru. Can I call you that yet? Oh, you yeah, probably don't like that mandle, do you? <laughs> nah, oh, why not, mate? <laughs> it's not your style, and um, I've enjoyed, Scott, just getting to know you over the last couple of years, and, and you're sort of, you're a steady set of hands. You don't get- No extremes. You, no extremes, <laughs> which is what I would expect from someone that does what you do for a living, but you're an engineer. By background, so I think yeah. you're very representative and engineer. That's yeah. a compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, Ben, what's been happening? Uh, good, mate. I was yeah. um, up in Queensland yesterday when they locked the borders on okay. us. So lucky it wasn't on the spot. They gave us two or three days' notice. So, yeah, crazy world. But, mm. um, yeah, just getting out there, looking at lots of properties, talking to lots of people. It's an uh, interesting time to be alive. Yeah. Did you fly in an aeroplane, no doubt? Yeah, on yeah. there. It was packed. Was it? Yeah. No social distancing? No. Zero. No. Should we wear a mask? Yeah, they give it to you now. Okay. So, and little hand sanitizer. There's no no drink services. It's, uh, airports look pretty gloomy, to yeah. be honest. It's uh, all the, like maybe one out of 15 shops are open, but yeah, it's it's sort of nice in a way. Just, mm. I don't know if, you know, when you spend a lot of time on the plane, it, to get to, a, you know, sit at the airport and not have to, you know, stand against the wall waiting for the line and all that stuff because there's too many people. It's a nice change. It's pretty good. I haven't flown. Uh, the last flight I had was back from Singapore, like, late February, just before. And now well, they were smack bang in the middle of COVID there. And I was like, oh, Armageddon's coming, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's the last flight I've taken. But uh, I think I'll be back domestically at some point soon. But anyway, that's not what we're here to chat about. We're here to chat about commercial property and including commercial lending. One of my routines every morning scott is that uh i walk up the hill from home and drink a couple of coffees on the way and i listen to all podcasts etc the first thing i do is that i read the uh, financial review uh cover the cover after i've read through all of the the different assets and platforms we have here at momentum media which is part of smart property investments so i get a pretty holistic and informed view of what's going on at any given time and, and i do that part of it just because it's process and that's what I've done for ages but also it's how I sort of really keep connected with anything that's going on and I just want to chat with you before we get into episode three of Inside Commercial Property with Rethink Investing just get a sense of the market right now so we're going to drill down in this episode into the sort of types of assets within the commercial landscape the sort of tenant types connected with them I want to get a bit of an insight on the asset dynamics when it comes to each of them because they're all behave in different ways and then the cyclical nature of commercial property so sometimes some are hot some are not the sort of economic inputs or economic influences on the asset types COVID-19 would be definitely something which has shaped all of these as well and just really compare and contrast all these assets side by side with each other and, and when is the right time to actually invest in these during the sort of property cycle. So that's a key focus for today. But I picked up the paper here. I've got it in front of me, the property section, a couple of headlines, vacancy rates to languish for longer, says analysts. Office vacancy could rise as high as 15% in Sydney and Melbourne in the next three years as working from home becomes more widely accepted in the workplace culture. That's one headline we've got here today and a little bit of a synopsis. There's another piece here, and you can probably hear me flicking through the paper. Offices could save the suburban retail strip is another one. So this is an article, Scott, talking about all those sort of high street suburban strips that you see that you might have had a, you know, a pizza hut in it or a, a news agent or, you know, a doctor's surgery or whatever. They're going to start turning them into 
many little office strips for sort of 25 odd people. So that's a really interesting scenario. So it shows how commercial property is evolving over time. And there's another one here that says commercial sales tank as buyers wait. So you read this and you'd be um, in isolation. You think you shouldn't be in commercial right now. But this is really talking about the office market. This is the cyclical nature of it all. How would you describe the environment in commercial real estate right now? Is it doom and gloom or is it up and up? Uh, well, it's mixed. So we're finding, I read an article in the Fin Review a few days ago saying that transaction levels are down by a third. Mm. But there's the same number of investors looking to buy. So we're all fighting over less stock. So that's due to interest rate drops. There's a little bit less confidence in the share market as well as residential as well. So investors are here to invest for the income that commercial property gives you. Unfortunately, office the office market is one of the casualties from COVID. You know, we're seeing vacancy rates rise. Like, for example, Melbourne went from a 3.4% vacancy rate to 77 as a direct result of COVID lockdowns. It's had a little bit of a recovery since, but it's not looking too good down there. Sydney's risen from 5.8% to 7.5% in that time. Mm. Adelaide's been steady. Canberra has actually dropped. So Canberra went from about 12% down to about 8% in the last 12 months. So tightening vacancy rates, believe it or not. Brisbane's slightly increased. You know, that's gone from about 11% to 12 But yeah, it's really Melbourne and Sydney that have had the sharpest decline. So... You know, at Rethink Investing, we don't really buy much office space at all. In fact, you know, it's probably a one in a hundred occurrence when we do. So we don't really look at it. Okay. We consider where the market's doing better is uh, the industrial space. Mm. That is, it's got by far the best leasing market right now. There is um, also tenants benefiting from lockdowns because retail has moved online more. So there's more uh, demand for storage space. Local manufacturing could be one of the big winners out of the China, US, UK, you know, tensions, you know, China against the Western world. So that might cause a bit of decentralization. That means we can't import everything we like we did. So local manufacturing might come back on. Industrial spaces, one of the definitions is where you manufacture goods and store it. So if you make more here in Australia, industrial space might be more valuable. So we target these areas because the outlook looks better. It's not doom and gloom at all. It's interest rates are incredibly low you just got to pick the winners and avoid the you know the like the stories you mentioned they're they're written to the extremes focusing on very small focal points but it's not the general nature out there there's many businesses still doing well mm. we've just got to target those and this is so you need a real filter when you're in the process of gathering information to make more informed investing decisions in commercial just be careful where you get your information don't be skewed by some of the media bias that you might see and i guess that's what we're trying to um support people with by doing this particular podcast is to have good honest frank conversations around investing in in commercial property and there is uh, australia's underweight in this sort of commentary and analysis it's pretty heavy in the retail space uh, residential space there's a lot of places you can get your information but light on commercial property so if you like what we're chatting about make sure you tell your friends who are investing in commercial and these are the sort of conversations we like to have we're still reasonably early on in this series of podcasts episode three so we're going to start getting some guests on at a point in time so we can talk about those real world stories and scenarios investing in commercial but we're still sort of foundationally helping a lot of our listeners understand the dynamics of commercial and that's very much the thrust of of this episode so let's chat through some of the different asset types i guess you'll call them that commercial being an asset class 
office, retail, industrial, and specialties. Pretty sort of broad brushstrokes, how we can delineate between the types of commercial properties in a way in which you can start looking at collective market dynamics around them. They all sort of operate in reasonable unison, but a collective of offices, a collective of retail, collective industrial, collective specialty. Kicking off with the office market, Scott, to some of those stories there, you'd be thinking that you wouldn't want to be getting into office, but already there's people pivoting now, changing you know, retail high streets into sort of dynamic office space. What are you seeing in offices right now and who are the sort of strong tenants in those particular areas? Yeah, so the office dynamics are we're seeing a weakness in the CBD space. For example, those uh, you know vacancy rates I just mentioned, they are increasing. However, there is a bit of a positive impact into suburban office space. So specifically professional service types. So a professional service tenant might be, you know, an accountant, a solicitor, an engineer, a financial planner. You could have mortgage brokers, you can have yeah, even like your old government type tenant stuff, those are generally quite stable tenants because they're not discretionary spend type businesses. They still need a space to do their business. You know, a lot of them need to meet clients for trust factors, for it branding reasons, you know, like they've got to have staff that don't have the facilities to work at home. So, you know, in most states, you know, besides Victoria, we're back to work to a degree. Yeah. And those suburban areas are doing quite well. They've generally got higher car spot ratios and things like that as well, which means less reliance on public transport. They're some of the reasons we're seeing office space do quite well in those areas. So yeah, two-speed market. And um, we find that those suburban type office spaces are cheaper per square meter. Again, businesses might want to look to save money. You can uh, pay you know half the square meter rate for somewhere closer to your home or, you know, it may not have the CBD brand to it anymore, but is that that important right now? Mm. I don't think so. So, you know, that's a strong part and, um, you know, there's not a lot out there, but look, accountants and lawyers and those types of tenants, they're quite sticky as well. Once they, you know, land on those locations, they don't really jump up just to save a little bit of rent to move somewhere else. You get them for the long term. So these are more localised businesses who may support their local market. So, Real estate agents, for example, are really geographically located to the area. You don't have a real estate agent operating in one area and they're selling, you know, stuff 20, 30, 40, 50 kilometers away. They normally own and operate within that particular space. You said that you don't do a lot of office and that might be a product of the cycle right now. And we'll get into that in a moment. But when you go about assessing a office based investment opportunity i imagine you would start at the type of tenants you would be attracted to so you want to make sure yours you know the asset would appeal to as many people as possible what would be the other sort of four or five key indicators that you need to be looking for when considering office uh, so i like modern offices or boutique type ones you know it might only be a three-story building mm. you know and they've got maybe a you know we bought one recently right next to a, a council and it was a surveying company and they've been there 20 years so that was a you know a good investment because uh, it, it had the location it needed to be in established businesses i find the tenants you can get with office are actually quite professional in nature so they're really good to deal with in many cases so you know they're quite relatable as well if you've come from a business world and never invested sometimes industrial might be too far retail can be a little bit more of the discretionary spend based stuff which has more risk as well so it's about just assessing the, the tenant itself, the location, make sure there's not too much supply. So one of the reasons why I find residential difficult to predict, everyone finds it difficult to predict, is it's at the mercy of the market. So no matter how much you think you know that market, it 
runs almost like the share market to mm. a degree. It's sentiment-based. And there's obviously other indicators about, you know, how much people can pay, what's going on with the interest rate. But uh, when you look at a commercial property, you can look at the specific business in that specific market and go, look, have they got the ability to pay the rent that's been promised to us? And then you can check the bank statements to check they've been paying. And it just gives you a lot more confidence. And then mm. you've got inbuilt increases in those leases. So you check, is it a 3 or 4% or a CPI? And uh, you just got to form your own dialogue around that tenant. And obviously, tenants in office space can come and go a little bit easier than someone with a you know a very expensive food kitchen type setup. You know, so that you know it's packing laptops up. So you got to take that into account. Mm. And uh, you know, you just weigh up the tenant case by case. And there isn't much good stock out there, which is one of the reasons we're not buying much of it. We probably would like to buy more of it, but you know, it's hard to hard to find the ones that all stack up. And we don't really want to go into the CBD and play the. Uh, you know, that to me is almost like a residential market. You're just one of thousands of other, you know, it's like you're just playing the numbers, you know, mm. what the floor space is worth is that's the going rate for that building. You know, there's not much you can control there. And I, I don't know your thoughts on this, but I'll ask, is your sort of CBD office space more the bastion of your your big institutional investors, your super funds and other, other type of funding vehicles and your suburban office is more sort of bastion of your mum and dad investors. Is that what you see? Yeah, look, price is a big part of it. And if you do go in with a, you know, a mum and dad or retail level investor budget, say mm. you're sub two or three mil, you're normally only getting a part of a floor of a CBD building. Mm. At least if you take two or three million, you know, I know it's big budgets for some, but you might end up with a whole building in a regional area. You might even get four or five tenants as part of that. So you know, the regional institutional buyers will buy entire tower blocks and they can be hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, they control the whole asset. There's benefits of that. You know, you can do value adds by increasing the whale, you know, the weighted average lease expiry on that and increasing the rent on it. You might do renovations. So you've got a different level of control and that's why the big guys play in that space a lot more. Mm. How worried are the big guys around sort of CBD or, or large metropolitan-based office space right now, they must be pretty concerned. Yeah, well, I'd be worried, like, how would they find buyers at the moment? Mm. You know, I, I don't think there's many people that'd be looking to do big acquisitions in that space right now. And the opposite is said in other industries, you know, so it is probably a wait and hold scenario for many of them. Mm. And, uh, you know, like if, you know, let's say if a vaccine comes out at the end of the year or whenever it is, or if it ever does, you know, something like that would change the dynamic pretty quick, I think. It might take a, a few years for things to settle down and you might need more population growth. And like, it could take a while for it to fully recover. Yeah. And that's the uh, reason why I steer clear of it most cases. Mm. And office CBD stuff, to your early point, was City Melbourne, I guess, in particular, was, was on a pretty good sort of upward trajectory, wasn't it, for a period of time now, the last 10 years? Yeah, look, it's rents have gone up, uh, asset values have, you know, doubled and tripled in some examples so mm. it's had an incredible 10 years so it's probably coming from a high point as yeah. well yields were getting very low you know you're talking four percent three percent you know for these types you know areas and i think you need more than that even brisbane you're looking at uh, you know five and a half to six percent for a, a really good building and you know you can do better than that so yields did get quite tight yeah and as we if you've been tuning in to inside commercial property for a little while rethink investing you know, we try and keep the focus of this particular podcast, Scott, at that sort of uh, retail investor level, not at the institutional level. So we sort of inverted commas, mum and dad investors, but this could be people 
investing thrive via their self-managed super fund, whether it's something that they choose to occupy themselves in business or yeah. or just as a, an asset and income creating vehicle, but also those uh, investors pivoting out of or addition to residential investing who are looking to add some commercial assets to their portfolio. And I sort of fall into that bracket. So, you know, I'd say more sophisticated investors on the retail side rather than institutional, but we also want to make sure that those who are embarking on their journey in investing in property don't necessarily always gravitate towards residential being their first investment. And we've spoken about that as well. I'm trying to open up some people's eyes and maybe unshackle the blinkers and think outside of the paradigm that you may know about. So that's the office market. And me personally, considering, you know, expanding out my portfolio into commercial, I probably wouldn't chase office at the moment for a whole bunch of of those reasons you mentioned. And that's not to say there isn't good assets out there, but it's more of a, a philosophy that you have within residential investing as well, is that where is your money going to be the most effective at any given time to help you on whatever your strategy is. And, you know, therefore, you need to shape how you approach things. So in a residential market, some people might say, well, I'm not going to invest in Brisbane because of this particular bias, but that might be the best place to park your money now. So when you look at these other asset classes within commercial, and let's shift on to retail, retail's distressed at the moment as well because of the changing nature of how people are buying stuff. Yeah, so, you know, and there's different types of retail. So, like, large format retail, you know, that might be your your homemaker centres and your, you know, targets and, you know, bunnings and all those types of ones. There's some areas that are doing really well Mm. and some that are not. You know, large, you know, to sort of show you, you know, a a variety retail can even be a gym tenant. It can be, you know, a sushi restaurant. It could be, you know, you could go on for an hour. But, like, there's just a thousand different types of businesses out there. And it's about picking the right one. And retail is suffering at the moment, especially where there's a forced closure. And that's where you've got to sort of, you know, be mindful. But look, it's a short-term issue. You know, like we've seen the gyms, for instance, in uh, many parts of Sydney and Brisbane and Perth where they had a terrible first quarter of the year, but now they're all back open and they're, they're you know, making up for lost ground because people are still got to keep fit. You know, it's not going to just die forever just because COVID's here causing a muck on mm. these types of things. So... It's always good to have a long-term picture and look at, you know, what could that space be used for if that current tenant didn't leave? Retail has the benefit of, you know, you've got potentially higher value fit-outs. Owners with businesses will put their money into it and that creates value on the lease. So like a cafe might have a $100,000, $200,000 fit-out, which is going to be there even if that current tenant leaves, he'll sell that business and there'll be another cafe owner running it. So you can get that kind of interchange of uh, owners, you know, that happens with hairdressers a lot as well, restaurants as well. So they sell the goodwill of the business with the stock in it and they basically try to uh, rebrand it and do their own thing. So that can be good as an investor if you've got new people coming in, you know, even if it's not the same operator for the next 30 years, you might have two or three in that time. So, you know, retail is still good, but you've got to be careful with the changing landscape, which is... Is it going to keep growing as fast as the rents have been growing over the last 30 years? You know, probably not. You know, there's enough kind of headwinds out there and the online world is the difference. Things are moving online because it's cheaper for, you know, your average retailer to market themselves on the internet than pay rents, especially when they've got multiple footprints. You know, imagine you've got 50 stores across the country. That's 50 times the rent you've got. Like it's a huge amount of outgoings you've got to cover. So... I've heard there's stories in COVID of a lot of famous retailers reducing the number of shops and keeping their most important ones. So 
instead of having 50, you might have 20. And, you know, that means they can get rid of the others, save on that, but they've still got their branding presence on the ground, which you probably never want to lose. It's just you don't need it as much as you once did. And, uh, yeah, so retail can, it's a good investment. you just got to make sure it's the right type and there's more weak tenants out there right now than strong ones. So it's about picking the winners again, checking that they've gone okay through COVID, you know, check if they're paid throughout the you know, period. Have they asked for any job seeker related payments and things like that? And, you know, it's just about sort of de-risking it as well and knowing the types of business you're buying into. Is it in a growth industry? And if you want to keep abreast of the dynamics of the changing nature of retail, um, there's some really good stuff around that can help you shape your perception opinion towards it. So a lot of the traditional retailers now are shifting online, but to, to Scott's point, they still have some flagship showrooms. Temple and Webster, for example, is a bit of a darling at the moment. It's rocketing along as everyone sort of shifts to working from home and everyone's buying home office stuff, right? So they have a showroom somewhere and they're largely a, an online store now. Um, so retail can be good, but don't assume that retail is just a shop where you buy stuff. A lot of it is amenities-based uh, stuff, food uh, in particular, cafes, takeaway restaurants, kebab shops out the front of the pub on Say by the stain there on, uh, yeah. uh, which you're not Northern Beaches guy, um, which is always it's been there forever, but it's always busy, and uh, those shops are always going to be there, right? Because of the nature of how people well, are still engaging. Think about like a bottle, for instance. Yeah. When the economy's good, people are still going to drink. When it's bad, they probably may even drink more. We mm-hmm. don't know. So it's a business that it's really kind of just competitor driven if it's successful or not. You know, mm-hmm. there's a need for it. You know, and bottlers can range from a little 500 grand shop front to a multi-million dollar drive-through and that's retail mm. and that you know, I'd love to own a big bottle you know that that's you know no matter what the economy is doing they generally come with long leases so you know we'll go through more of these specific type tenants throughout this show but it's yeah like there is definitely good retail and the ones that are probably not going to be there next year so in terms of retail can you give me some sense for how clusters of retail shops uh, work together and, and what I'm painting a picture of here is say your suburban shopping strip or you know you know when you get these like like a horseshoe shaped type of uh, building with you know, a butcher a baker a little food store a bottle shop you know how important is it when you're buying retail that there is other retail around it there must be a guiding philosophy to all this. Yeah, and that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because that's the neighbourhood shopping centre is what you referred to. That's what to, I'm looking for, yeah. Is doing very well right now, mm. and especially in regional areas because okay. the key with neighbourhood neighbouring shopping centres is you've got a lot of car spots, you've got everything you need but nothing you really don't. So you might have a big supermarket anchoring it and then you've got a couple of medical properties like a dentist or a an actual doctor and a chemist, you know, things like that. And then you might have your hairdresser, your, you know, often they've got things like, you know, a news agency and a, a restaurant or two. A fish and chip shop. Exactly. So you, you can and a eat. Chinese restaurant. Yep. Yeah. Are, and that's, that's a very common mix. And yeah. people love them. And if you're lucky enough to be able to afford to buy one of them as a whole, like that's a complete portfolio done in one purchase because you've got your big, long, safe lease with the supermarket that might be on a lower square meter rate because they negotiated good deals but then all of your other little properties around it actually increase the yield because a hairdresser you know relative to a you know you might be getting a, a supermarket at a five percent yield but the hairdresser might be a seven so you need those smaller ones pushing the yield up to justify the you know to get that return to a, an acceptable rate 
but then there's some retail that will struggle and you know that you've seen in the US with the big malls where you know they've extremely high square meter rates and you know it's more kind of a fashion type upper end style that's struggling a little bit more because mm. it's not centered around the essential service type thing like food and health and that's what neighborhood shopping centers have yeah so I was actually looking for the right word and it's essential so neighborhood shopping centers so this is all about needs versus wants or utility-based spending versus discretionary spending. So people need to get their hair cut. People need a bottle shop. People need a Chinese restaurant. People need a fish and chip shop. People need a little supermarket. People need a butcher. People need a baker. So this is stuff that you do need and you don't get that online. It's very immediate and it's for the now versus fashion, electronics, you know, more commodity-based products is what's really getting disrupted at the moment with online shopping because you know it's commodity based buying everyone has it you can shop around so i can see why that is under stress quite a lot in terms of a a neighborhood shopping center and i like the sound of it and maybe this is my first foray into uh, commercial like in sort of regional parts of australia so by that i mean not metropolitan centers or even it might be a metropolitan suburban area like what are you in for if you find a good asset 10 shops in it butcher, baker, whatever it is, right? Like stuff where people need to go every day, even if just get the milk and then buy something else while they're there. What are you in for? Uh, good how, question. How, how big is that? How long is a piece of string? Yeah, so yeah. you can buy a, a pretty poor quality one for about 1.5. Okay. I find the real good stuff like is a starting point of about 4 mil. Okay. So, you know, you need to drop a million dollars cash. Bank will do the rest. You mm. might get two or three mates together. You know, that's where you can start buying that stuff. There. They're popular, they're doing well. And the reason is like I like using the term destination type retail tenants where you have to go there. Like you just mentioned, you know, you can't sell your bread and all those things online. You know, it's they're gonna be relevant in twenty years' time, I feel. And it's you've got to get out of the house and shop just, you know, especially if, if we're working on let's say COVID floats around for the next decade, you're still gonna to need to get out of your house and walk down to the shops and see a doctor or, you know, like you know, get the supermarket. Like I can't imagine no, that's just ever going to be a redundant type. Well, you used, to have, you used to have the milkman, right? So, yeah. like, the milkman was disrupted because, you know, he used to come every single day, drop your milk off, pick up the old bottles. He's gone. He's gone for 20 years now because mm. of the rise in these type of assets or convenience stores, for example, yeah. right, which is just a newer version of just the standard shop. So, I can't see going back to that where your bread gets delivered every day, your milk gets delivered every day. You might do some online shopping, and that, again, is a disruptive force, but I still think that people are always going to be shopping this way, you know, your local yeah. tie joint, you know, yeah. But, like, I'm not a into supermarket businesses or, like, I don't know too much about it outside being involved in buying a few, but imagine Coles and Woolworths had no shop fronts. Wouldn't that open up the world to more competitors? Like, if everyone can sell stuff online... You know, you might all of a sudden not know what Coles or Woolworths are because you've got 10,000 other companies from all over the globe doing the same thing. So, I don't know. I always feel like you'll need a big shop front and people like foraging and finding food and, and you know. Yeah, people also like purpose, right? Like some people is a bit of a, you know, to actually, it's routine and repetition to go and get the milk, buy the paper. Like hmm. I can't, you, most people don't want to sit and wait around even half a day for online shopping, right? Like they want it now. So, I don't mind the asset class but it's got to be absolutely right like you don't like the local crystal shop or you know stuff that no one wants to buy i wouldn't be investing in those areas because i think those type of retail sellers will be gone at a point 
in the not too distant future. And if you're going down that pathway, you've got to make sure what you are investing or the businesses that are within them have utility for a huge cross-section of the population that lives in that area. And that would be a sort of guiding force for making those assessments. So uh, industrial, Scott, industrial is a little bit broader, I guess, than maybe some of the other asset classes. Everyone can picture a, a commercial property. That's normally somewhere where you sit with computers in it. Retail is where you go and buy stuff. But industrial can spread from uh, the purpose of manufacturing to warehousing to lo- the whole logistics business to whatever. You like industrial, don't you? That's your sort of bread and butter. Yeah, look, there's two things that are doing incredibly well in in the COVID world. It's gold and industrial. Mm. So gold is the industrial of the commercial world at the moment where people have seen that it's doing well. You know, you've got the likes of, you know, Amazon. They're opening up that 200,000 square metre warehouse out in Western Sydney, which is actually the same size as Sydney's Taronga Zoo. That's how big it is. And uh, Amazon just stopped at 38.5%. Of all US e-commerce in the last month was through Amazon. There you go. So nearly 40% of everything bought online in America is through Amazon. So it's gold. It's just growing. So floor space is is, uh, valuable. There's obviously weakness in some sections, but overall, like, it's probably, you know, the most stable. And uh, this is an overall point of view. Like, there's outliers and everything, but it's a very healthy market from where we're sitting and you know where uh, I was up in Brisbane and agents can't get enough stock there's no one really wanting to sell this stuff and the mm. stuff that is selling is going for tighter and tighter yields like we're seeing like you know on average probably a whole percent of a yield drop which is about a 15 16% growth rate just in the last 6 months and it's just because the stock's dried up so yeah it's really interesting times and you know the tenants said generally bigger, more experienced businesses, which have, you know, like the one I was walking through yesterday was doing high-end window framing. And there, it was about a 2,000 square meter warehouse we helped a client buy into five Manufacturer years. or a warehouser? Manufacturer. Okay. So they were literally cutting the steel frames, putting them together. They had a little showroom at the front too to show their finished product, but they specialized in making window frames for high-end houses and unit blocks over nine stories for some reason. Mm. That was their, and they're doing a lot of stuff around Noosa. So they're, they've got the market covered and they were booming. And throughout COVID, you know, they've had some delayed jobs and things like that. But, you know, that was just a really interesting market. Like social distancing and all that kind of stuff can be easily maintained in places like that. Mm. So business can keep going as long as the demand's there. And, and yeah, look, I like industrial for those reasons. You're dealing with sort of bigger established businesses in many examples and in the smaller space, like, you know, your 100 to 200 square metre stuff, there's a lot of tenants around, like tradies storing vehicles to little people doing, uh, you know, starting their business out. And, you know, you can find tenants quite quickly. The tenants don't stay as long. So the larger the property and the higher value, the generally the harder it is to find a tenant, but the longer they stay. Mm. It's kind of like a little uh, curve, which, uh, you know, the higher you go, it sort of just keeps going up. So if you were buying a you know, a 5,000 square metre warehouse, it's going to take a while for you to find a tenant, but you might get that tenant five times longer than something, you know, five times smaller. So, yeah, it's that inverse relationship, which I find is quite consistent. And, you know, it's just a matter of buying in areas where, you know, you're getting good value. You've got to look at the square metre rates for the bill costs. And mm. so, you know, there's not much supply that's going to knock your value down or better yet, it might be a totally built out suburb. There's no chance of more stuff coming through. So, 
Yeah, it's a good industry and banks are liking it as well. I've had many clients start getting loans and they say, oh, the bank will do a 70% loan or an 80% loan if it was industrial. And then we look at a retail and they're wanting more deposit Okay, for the same client, same, everything's the same. So, so, so if you go back in time, 10 years ago, when industrial was a little bit on the nose, it wasn't the, the darling of, of our commercial lending, you would have bought up a load of it. Yeah, you'd, you'd probably go to Western Sydney and just, do the biggest loan you possibly could and buy the biggest possible warehouse and just to buy all of the St. Mary's uh, industrial precinct because that stuff will be hot property moving oh, forward. Oh, it'd be very wealthy. Yeah. This is it. So this is, you got to be having a, you know, a 10-year, 20-year time horizon when investing in commercial and sort of getting carried away right now with thinking, okay, how should you invest in a COVID environment? You know, what is the future going to look like? And offers, the way people are going to work is going to change, the way people are going to shop is going to change and the way in which commerce happens as in the buying wholesaling and moving of products consumer products is going to change so you need to be crystal balling and in many ways that's one of the reasons why we're doing this particular podcast to help shape those issues let's talk about a specialty property really quickly scott i read the other day i can't remember who was talking about it maybe it was us uh Petrol stations are like the place to be right now people are going it's hard to get them they're hard to get approval on they're doing really really well etc etc your views towards sort of specialty type investments petrol stations is an example caravan parks golf courses car wreckers all this sort of stuff opinion look because i look at return on invested capital when i invest so Mm. that's the return on your deposit when you've got to put a bigger deposit in which is what you have to do for specialty type properties so your childcare service stations you know probably a caravan park i haven't looked at that but you're looking at minimum 40% deposits. And the reason there's a higher deposit is there's a higher risk. If your business, like let's say you buy a service station, there's only one use for that unless you spend a lot of money fixing it. Mm. And um, there's a lot, and there's also, you know, among the normal due diligence you've got to do, you've got to look at things like, you know, the environmental protection and contamination issues. You've got to look at even things to do with the fuel lines and tanks, you know, because they're underground. You've got to make sure they're not leaking. So you've got to get that inspected and who's responsible for this if there's an you know a leak you know these are extra things you need to look at and it's not somewhere that the novice investor should play in you know i think it's you know you're only as good as the business in that location like if a fuel station is declining in profits because there's another fuel station that's been built or maybe the road's been bypassed or you know more electric cars all of a sudden your entire life savings potentially could be in that. And fuel stations generally fit in the 1.5 to 7 mil range. So they're not cheap. The mm. average one's probably three or four mil. So you're going to have to come up with multiple millions of dollars just for the deposit. And uh, there's a lot riding on that one business doing well. The bonuses for it, the long leases, you're generally looking at a five to 15 year lease with um, five year reviews after that so you might have an initial 10 years and then it's a five year and five year after Mm. it's uh what we're seeing a lot but yeah look it's i guess you know being my age as well i always think you know what's going to happen in 30 years time with these types of things and none of us really know but we all sort of see the trend of electric electricity cars and that could uh topple off a lot of these and you might only need one in four Mm. and if you're stuck on a five million dollar property with 40 percent cash down on it you know, like for it's so. gonna be hard to shift, and yep. your yields are gonna go down. You might be stuck with a bit of a white elephant, right? Yeah, you know who knows. And that's the difference from all the other properties we've discussed. If you lose your tenant in an industrial or retail or office space, you'll find another tenant. 
You know, it's just a matter of when and how long it's going to take and at what rent value. But yeah, no, you're really just going to need another fuel operator who thinks they can do a better job than the previous one if your current one went broke. And other than that, you'll be uh, looking to uh, pull the tanks out and replace the soil and hopefully turn it into some residential development. And, mm. you know, that could be a long time before you turn a profit. That's really good sort of 101 it's a university term for the, the first course that you do when you go to university. It might be statistics 101 as in the basics. Uh, so it's good to get this foundational stuff uh, sorted out. And, and we've had a chat about the tenant types and the asset dynamics. just want to conclude uh, with a discussion, Scott, around how do you choose when to invest in these different sort of asset classes? And I imagine a lot of that is connected in with sort of economic influences which shape the fortunes of these particular asset classes. How do you know you're investing in the right stuff at the right time to get the right result? So my little shortcut is knowing the rental market. If I feel like there's more tenants looking for these properties, that's a good forward indicator that there's going to be growth because it's rental growth. Your higher rent values mean your price is going to be worth more. So if you're buying into a declining rental market, that's why the office space is a little bit off at the moment, it's declining. So in two years' time, that might actually affect asset values a fair bit. But if you're buying into an area where there's more and more tenants mm. and less supply, that means growing rents, growing asset values, relatability simple, which means your lost income for long periods of time is going to be minimised, that's the starting point, I feel. And honestly, it's just about knowing the market and, you know, like I know you, 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 know, you follow your shares and all those types of things are very important. If you know the ASX and know how different companies are getting valued on the stock exchange and how sentiment's driving prices up, there's a good chance that could relate to commercial as well. Final question, Scott. When you think about investing in commercial property, and you know we, we chat about a lot about this when, in the context of residential, but within commercial, is there particular points at time as you go down the pathway of building out a commercial property portfolio? Should you start with one asset class over another? Is one asset class a better foundational investment than other asset classes? And putting that in the same context as residential, you probably don't go out the first time you're investing in residential property and, and, and buy a huge townhouse development block that you need to hold for many years and get a DA on and then build six properties on it. You normally get a bit of a inverted commas, meat and potatoes type property, foundational property. How does it work in commercial? It's all about the relatability again. So it doesn't matter if it's an office space. If it's the perfect off let's say it's a real estate office space on a corner and it's a bit bit of retail and it's had a 10-year term in it you know that's a good investment mm -hmm. so it's specific to the investment it, you don't need to say i have to do a medical property or i have to do a you know a 200 square meter warehouse because you might find that you know the best deal in the best street at the right price so it's always asset specific but it is good to get familiar with it and don't pigeonhole yourself so i, I see a lot of investors say i really want a childcare. But childcare has quite large risks at the moment. You know, there's government funding getting pulled from it. There's, uh, you know, oversupplies of them in many areas, particularly in regional, like, you know, occupancy rates are dropping. Why would you want to only consider childcare? Mm. You know, you, and, you know, it's a lot of money for those things as well. You know, you can spend five mil on a childcare. So it's about just understanding how easy it is to relet that property. And that's a nice basic thing. If you think it's going to be hard to get a new tenant, and it's your first property, probably don't buy it. Mm. So it's always uh, keep it simple, but it goes a lot beyond that. You know, you've got to get the right yield, right price. It's got to be the right growth market. You know, and that's where, you know, you might, you know, one by one exclude certain assets. Like you've just mentioned, you're excluding office. That's what many people are doing right now. So yeah. then you go, all right, I'm looking at retail. 
an industrial, let's look at the best of what we can get out of that. And then you might find a tenant that you know that's going really well, you know, like a bottle eye, for instance, mm. a, a national brand. You know, you can then just start getting more specific. But you have to be flexible because the amount of stock out there is very tight. So you may not find your ideal property. It might be in a totally different industry. So there's not much selection. It's not like the residential, like we mentioned, where there's tens of thousands of houses to choose from. We're all fighting over a handful of good properties and, you know, you just got to go the one that's uh, suiting you on that day when you're ready to buy. Really good. So that's um, really informative. Uh, thanks, Scott, for sharing those insights. What I like about this, I'm a lot more informed. It's part of my education as well. So uh, it's a real privilege for me to be able to spend a sort of an hour with you to record these podcasts and, you know, share that journey, share that story with all of our listeners. And, uh, you know, inside commercial property, rethink investing, it's really growing in popularity. So make sure you tell your friends about it. If people want to know more about what you guys do, Scott, like how do they track you down? How do they find you? Or um, you can find Rethink Investing on Facebook or just go to our website, rethinkinvesting.com.au. And uh, yeah, we can just have a chat about your exact situation and see if commercial is the right property for you or not. Mm, great. Thanks for your time today. I really do appreciate it. No problem, mate. Thank you. We'll see you all again next time. Until then, bye-bye.